Welcome to the Disruptive Mindset Podcast. Join me, Emma Jones, as we take a deep dive behind the scenes of executives and leaders in the IT and the tech industries. We'll find out about their models for success, lessons they've learned, and what makes them disruptive in their businesses and sectors, and ultimately find out how it can help us. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Disruptive Mindset Podcast. I'm your host today, Emma Jones, and I have a very special guest with me. She's a board director, an advisor, a strategic consultant, and an expert on data and privacy in financial crime. She's also inclusion and diversity expert with over 20 years of experience in the financial services sector. She's held senior roles at companies like the London Stock Exchange, Thomson Reuters, City, and is currently involved in a variety of initiatives and organizations that aim to advance the data and privacy agenda. As well, she promotes gender diversity and equality in the industry. She has received numerous awards and recognitions for her achievement and contributions, including an OBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours in 2021. So please welcome Vivian Arts, and thank you, Vivian, for joining me today. I'm going to dive straight into questions. So Vivian, thank you very much for coming on to the Disruptive Mindset podcast, and I'm super looking forward to this today. Um, and I'm going to dive into my first question, because so tell us a little bit about who you are and what your background is. Thanks, Emma. And it's really an absolute pleasure to be with you today. Um, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, so who am I? Gosh, that sounds like an existential question, doesn't it? Um, but I'm a lawyer, so let me start with that. So I qualified as a lawyer in the city, um, and I actually was really keen to follow a career in intellectual property. Um, but I... Uh, I, my degree was philosophy and theology, and apparently if you weren't a scientist, then you could never get into hard IP. So um, I thought, well, what's the next best thing? And technology was blooming, so I decided to become a technology lawyer, uh, which I did. And so my background is as a lawyer, I worked in private practice, I worked in financial services, um, and now I have a portfolio career, um, which is super exciting and which I'm really, really enjoying and i and i say that with a sense of surprise in my voice because um i had always planned to have a portfolio career sometime in the future but i hadn't planned to have a portfolio career right now i think we're always planning far too far ahead um so yeah it's it's one of those things I, but I'm, I'm i'm a lawyer by profession and by qualification and that's what's really shaped my outlook and my life and my focus has been on um technology and the digital world and data protection. Um, but I look at it much more from the front end now in terms of policy and thought leadership and strategy. So having come as a as a lawyer doing the doing and, and uh, contracts and all that kind of thing, my career has evolved, um, particularly with my work uh, with government affairs teams and so on and with industry bodies to one where it's much more about looking at new legislation and thinking about what what impact it has, but also um, what perhaps we should be legislating and regulating for in future. So super interesting. I think it's fascinating. Super interesting. There you go. I hope you think it's interesting as well. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I'd imagine, you know, so going through that um, journey of becoming a lawyer, 
And that's held you in really, really good stead. And then obviously, I'm not too sure whether it was a, a conscious decision to fall into technology, but a great place to fall into, um, you know, and then uh, that's giving you the foundation. So I want to dig into your um, journey to the boardroom, because that that's obviously where you where you sit very firmly now on a number of different, um, under a number of different levels. So tell me about that journey. Was it an easy journey? How did you get there? Was it a planned journey? So yes, it was planned from the sense that um, when I was thinking about, you know, what do I do for the rest of my career? Because um, I had I had different inflection points where I needed to make a, a decision. You know, do I stay or do I go? So one of them was I was at Citibank for 17 years. I was a managing director. It was great. It was global. I'd looked at other roles before, but none of them were as quite as interesting or as broad or as exciting. Um, and then I realized, you know what? I could be here forever, but hmm, I think I'm going to be on replay all the time, <laughs> in, a, in a sense. Am I growing? And I thought, you know what? I am spending more time and enjoying things I do outside of my day job than I am doing inside of my day job. And that was the decision point for me. Um, actually, no, no, I need to go and do what I really, really enjoy. So I think it started with Women in Banking and Finance, actually, um, when I had the opportunity to apply to be the CEO. And I went for it, um, not thinking I was going to get it, because I went for it on the basis that um, I had been co-chairing the City Woman Network, um, but I really didn't want to do a network for network's sake. Um, actually, I wanted to do something that was going to generate a huge amount of change. So I went in and I said, um, ladies, this is lovely, but um, I am not inspired by a warm glass of wine and a chat at six o'clock in an evening about the woes of the world. Um, actually, I think we need to change financial services sector and we need to change our culture and we need to change the law and we need to change the practice and that's actually what i think we need to do um and they um well they took me on and said all right then go for it um and so it was yeah, had, to, had to do it all yeah <laughs> i was like okay we're gonna do, we're gonna go on this journey together and they're like okay this sounds great so what do we do um and so i think that was part of it because then i i realized the value of working with a, a, an advisory board and senior people and i recognized then um, actually how important it is to have that extra governance and that input at, at a board level. And we'll talk a little bit about WIBF later as well, I'm sure. But, um, you know, you think at different points in your life, what are you going to do? And I thought, oh, I'd be a lawyer. Then I thought, oh, I want to be, you know, a CEO. So I went and did that. And then um, I wanted to be sort of a policy lead. And then I was chairing lots of committees and industry bodies. And it was all very exciting, helping to shape change and make a difference and things like that. And I thought, actually, but it's that, that overall leadership and governance piece that I'm super interested in. And so I spoke to a number of recruitment um, uh, agencies about, you know, so what do I need to do to be a board director? Um, and I can't say they were particularly helpful. Um, most of them were like, oh, so what is your experience? And it's like, well, it's chicken and egg, isn't it? I'm an executive. I'm not a board director. Um, so what do you do to be a board director? And so it's one of those things I, I think so many of us of a certain age, you learn by doing. And so I became a school governor. Um, and that was incredibly helpful because I then learned about um, all of the governance structures and about managing from that perspective and and the the, the role of a of a trustee and such like, um, and then I I took on additional sort of voluntary roles which gave me more experience, um, and then I decided actually I think this is super cool. I think having the opportunity to shape and influence an organisation from the board level is probably where 
I want to go next. But um, it was a journey where I had to curate the direction. There, there's no there's no rule book or way out there. Although I would say I would say um, that I've just recently read an absolutely super book um, by Dambisa Moyo. That are how boards how work. work. Okay, yeah. and total recommended reading. And I wish I'd read this before I started on my board journey because um, she just distills all kinds of different boards, how they work, how they operate, which I think gives you a better insight as to what boards are. Because I would say that boards aren't everyone's end journey. I thought it was definitely the way you go in your career. You know, you become a lawyer, you become a leader, all this kind of stuff. And then you go and do board work. Um, and actually, it's been really interesting doing some of the board work. And I don't think it's for everybody. And there's some boards that I don't think I could, I would succeed in either. So what's the reality then um, of of sitting on a board? Because, you know, as you've just said, it's like not everybody's journey, but lots and lots of people sitting in corporate. So I've got two questions here, actually. Number one, I'm really curious if you if you were still, uh, and you've obviously gone on your journey and you look back and somebody came to you in corporate and said, Vivian, how do I get onto a board? So what would your advice be now? Because you didn't get that. And, and also, what's the reality of sitting on the board? Oh, the first thing I say is, why do you want to be on a board? Why? What is what is your preconceptions about being on a board? Because I think we all have too many preconceptions. Um, and actually, uh, I did a, a board course um, uh, when I won the um, uh, We Are the City Award. Uh, part of the, the gift that I received afterwards, amazing, was actually to go on a board course, which I did with um, Deloitte. And that was like super insightful. Uh, because we heard from actual board members about what they did and what the reality is. The reality is, is if you're going to be on a proper board with a regulated company, or maybe it's even a public company, um, it's a huge amount of structure and governance, and there are set committees, and your obligations are very, very clear. And it is about you know hiring and firing the CEO, it's about governance, and it's about strategy. Um, and you are no longer an executive. You cannot interfere with a company, but you are there to share your wisdom, your insights, um, and to make sure that the organization is ultimately successful. Um, and it is a different way of interacting. And I think a lot of people at the executive level think that being on the board means you get free reign to go and interfere and tell the CEO what to do. No, not really. <laughs> the the, the C-suite have their have their job to do and they really don't want a board that's going to come and peer over their shoulder every five minutes you need to recognize what is your role your role is it's kind of like the wisdom of solomon um you need to be helping the company and the ceo spot the issues deal with challenges and make sure that the company is growing and succeeding asking questions like what does ai mean to our company how are we addressing this are we, are we, you know, where do we sit in terms of ESG reporting? What are the key issues for the company? And then you give it to the CEO and, and the leadership team. So, you know, you go away and come back and tell us what that means. But, you know, we're here to ask those relevant questions. Uh, it's a bit like having the ultimate sort of mentor um, a, a above you um, at the board level. So it's a different set of skills. And for those people who want to just do more and interfere, no, that's not what it's about. It's really about taking that step back and being being wise 
um, and ensuring that the organization is operating effectively. And you can have a big impact actually on culture. And I think that's one of the things that interests me a lot is that through through the governance um, of the board of directors, you can really help influence um, the culture within an organization. And you can also spot things on culture that perhaps when you're right in the middle of it, you can't necessarily see. So yeah, it's um, it's not for everyone. Um, and I would also suggest that there's two things. One of the things I've, I'm looking at is um, board work is actually a lot of work. Um, you know, you need to think about there'll be the annual meeting, there'll be four minimum four directors meetings. You'll probably be expected to serve on two committees. Each of those will have meetings before the quarterly meetings. I mean, you're up to 12 meetings already, and that's before you've done any read-in or dealt with any issues or crises. Um, it's a, it's actually a huge amount of time, and um, you need to look at whether the remuneration is important for you or not, because it doesn't pay like an executive role. Certainly not in the UK and Europe, it doesn't. Um, some of the big companies in the US, they, they pay their board directors really well, but it's not about the pay. It's about the opportunity to, to help and to have impact. I, I mean, I think that's amazing insight. Thank you so much. So, if you're if you're someone sitting in corporate, and you're like, right, I want an, I want a Ned career, that, and that that that's where you're off to. What what are the what are the key questions? Because you've already been on this journey and you've done that, and and you've probably learned the hard way, I, I would imagine, um, in in some cases. But what what are the key questions that you should be asking yourself? um to as a as a reflection so first why do you want to do it um and then secondly you're going to have to carve out time it's an absolute priority you can't just not be available um it, it is it is a big commitment and undertaking um i'd also suggest that um taste and see um i would start with as i said i did with the school governor role it's actually a really excellent foundation um the other thing is lots of charities are looking for board directors but be very careful um to lose them, use a colloquialism, they'll suck the lifeblood out of you if you let them. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's something about pro bono. When you're doing something pro bono, people feel as if they can ask you for everything. It's incredible. Uh, when you're doing something on a paid basis, they tend to be much more respectful of your time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, look at the reality, isn't it? And um, but I would I would I would suggest try some board roles that are less demanding in conjunction with your executive career first. So you can see whether or not it's actually for you. Mm -hmm. um, and if you've got the skills and the capability to do it, and then it gives you a better idea about what you want to do because the scope of boards is very, very broad. And one of the things I, I, I just touched on, but didn't spend any time on is actually board or board advisory. And um, actually I find board advisory in many ways much more rewarding um, so as a board director, you have fiduciary and legal obligations. You're bound by the articles and the statutes of the organization. Um, there are specific roles that need uh, to be um, played and so on and so forth. Board advisory gives you a lot more flexibility. And in that way, you can either be an advisor to the board or an advisor to the CEO. And actually, you can do much more. So if you want to be broader, more creative, if you want to step outside of your committee structure and ask um specific questions or to follow a particular train of thought 
um, it gives you much more latitude to do that. And also it doesn't come with the same statutory obligations and responsibilities that a board role does. And I think for me, that was kind of, maybe it's the lawyer in me, but it was a real understanding of the obligations and responsibilities. This is a legal role and it was real legal um, impacts. And you've got to recognize that. This isn't a would be nice to have off the side that, you know, um, you know, could keep you busy and interested if you felt like it kind of role. Um, it's it's very serious and needs to be approached in a serious way. And I think choosing what board you want to be on is also important. Regulated or unregulated, big difference. Public or private, big difference. Um, and what sector, um, you know, I think it's helpful to try something new, but you don't want to be landing in a sector where you know nothing at all. Um, because I think that makes it really difficult to add value um, as a board director. Um, you don't want to be a know-it-all. You're not the expert. That's what the, the the management team are there for. They're the expert. They're running the company. But I think you also need to have a familiarity and interest in the, the sector and the business of the company in order to be effective. Yeah, and I, I, would, I, yeah, I would imagine also that you would need to understand what value you would bring to the board because the board up I, I the boards are made up of all sorts of different types of people aren't they you know from from uh you know from a, a strategist to a coach to somebody who's in hr you know so it, it's not really knowing your skill set um and knowing I, I would imagine what what how you play and what and a good chair will select board members based on you know what you can bring and so with a legal and data and governance background, you know, you can kind of see that I'm going to fit really well with the audit committee and the governance committee and so on and so forth. And that, that's that, and, and even remuneration that that fits really, really well. Um, with my financial services background, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, uh, unfamiliar with being on the finance committee as well. But it's also that life experience um, that they're looking for, experience of different sectors um, and different issues. And I think it's really helpful sometimes if you can come from a sector that's been through a lot. I mean, financial services had, has had its ups and downs. So having lived through crises is incredibly useful um, if a board member is familiar with that. And then interestingly, we're seeing like in the US, in New York State, they're actually requiring boards now to have at least one board member that has some sort of familiarity or expertise with cybersecurity issues, yeah. recognizing that companies are digital, that data is so important, and that cyber risks are increasing, and they can be absolutely devastating for companies. And so having somebody on the board who is familiar with these issues that can help steer the company um, to ensure that they are as well safeguarded as possible, and when they have to deal with a cyber issue, and I say that very carefully, because it's not if, it's when mm -hmm. they have to deal with a cyber issue. There's somebody on the board has that some familiarity and um, experience with cyber issues because it is dealing with an absolute crisis um, and uh, you don't want you don't want the board in shock you want the board able to help make those really difficult decisions that the, the management team may have to make as well you know if it's ransomware or something like that it's yeah. tough decisions yeah no and you're you're absolutely right you know and I suppose it's about how you prepare the board to work in in those um in those crisis situations you're absolutely right really interesting about how you know 
who and how you set up these um, these boards, definitely. And it's teamwork. I mean, the team, if, if you have to get on with your board members, I know people who've left boards because they just don't get on with the other board members. And I, you know, if, if that's the case, I think you do have to go. Um, obviously, why you're not getting on is, is an important reason as well. But it's so important for a board to have different views and to challenge each other. But at the end of the day, it's so you can't just be running around like a bunch of individuals. You really need to be acting in concert together in the best interests of the business. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's a, it's a whole different mindset. It's, it's um, well, I love it, actually. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And I can see like because you've got real energy around that. Um, so I want to take you because I think um, it's really interesting at the moment with um, with the younger generation. So, you, so you you've got a whole heap of of experience and and you you've landed where you've landed. So, what would your advice be uh, for the next generation coming through? Because we've got technology, you know, running at uh, you know hundred miles an hour. Things are really changing. I'm not not too sure the educational system has changed to keep up with you know the new skill sets that we're going to need. Um, you know, but we're still throwing throwing uh, you know children out into the the working world. So, what advice could you would you give someone being in the forefront of technology, being in boards, you know, and and being in the position that you're at? I would say be open to opportunities. Um, I think too often we can be channeled and you know have a, have a single ambition in mind. Um, and actually, we need to remember, particularly for the younger generation coming up, um, life is a very long journey and life is a learning journey. I think one of the things that I thought was that I, you know, the early part of my career, I thought, oh, I'd, I'd train and then I'd be this marvelous expert. And then something magical happened at the end of my career. I'm not quite sure what. And then it'll be over. Um, and it was this sort of this linear line. And actually, one of the things I've realized is that um, the, the, the life journey doesn't always go in a straight line and you need to be open to the doors that open on either side of you, not just the ones that open ahead. I think too often the younger generation is so keen to, to progress and to move upward that they're not spending enough time looking from side to side and to see whether or not there are lateral opportunities that they would benefit from. Um, and, I, you know, I think there's an awful lot of skipping to the next opportunity that is only ahead um, without actually perhaps building that solid foundation and making sure you're you're comfortable and confident with where you are before you take the next step because it's all about experience isn't it um, and you and you build that over time so don't be afraid to spend a bit of time don't be in such a rush um, spend a bit of time and make those lateral moves which broaden your base I think one of the things I've really benefited from, some of it by accident, some of it by design, was when I started to broaden my base of experience. So not just being a lawyer, but also now getting involved with industry bodies, then collaborating with the um, the public policy team, then taking on a leadership role within the women's network. And, you know, it was actually that breadth that has enabled me to move um, further forward rather than the narrow expertise bit um, that I think too often uh, people are chasing. Um, so yeah, take some time and, and look around you um, and broad, broaden out your experience because it'll, it'll, it'll do you good and it rounds you off. The other thing I would suggest is, um, uh, I think it's always been a useful piece of advice that was given to me is uh, keep one foot in something you know and put the next, the other foot into something new. And that way, You've got a, a solid base 
but you're also learning and growing at the same time. So rather than putting both feet into something completely new, which um, could be terribly scary and may or may not succeed, actually one foot in something solid and the other in something new. And I think that's probably quite a nice um, uh, rule to have in mind as to, to how you can move forward uh, with confidence yeah, I and think excitement. I think that's an absolutely brilliant bit of advice, to, to be honest with you. It's about how you diversify, which is always really difficult, I think, because you, you always want to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater, don't you, and go, right, that's it, I'm going in this direction. But actually, I think keeping that foot in in in, in the camp that you know is, is really, really solid advice. So I want to um, take you back to 2021, where you were awarded the OBE. And uh, which is an amazing, I mean, amazing uh, thing to be awarded. And um, you included in the GDR Women in Data 2022 um, list of leaders, and you were at the cutting edge of the legislation and regulation in technology um, around the world. So, so talk to me about um, your work in gender diversity and the financial services, because I think you know this, this is a an amazing part of your career. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it was such an honor, actually, to get uh, an OBE. Um, and I, I remember when the email arrived, and uh, I just thought I'd check my emails before going to bed, and it was uh, during lockdown. And um, this email came through, uh, and it said, "Would would you would you accept an OBE? You know, if it was to be awarded to you." And I thought, "Why would I? Why would I question?" Did you know this was coming? Did you know this email was coming? You had no, no idea. I was just checking my emails for it. And then it says, top secret, you can't tell anyone. So I, I nearly burst a blood vessel. I was like, oh my goodness. Um, I thought, no, is it a scam? And then I, I re-looked it and I was like, no, it looks pretty legit to me. So I, I, I told my husband and I said, well, we can't say anything to anyone. But now, of course, I can't sleep, can I? Um, so because it had to all be top secret and so on. Then I put the next day I had to fill in all the forms and things like that. So that was, that was super exciting. But um, I was really thrilled to receive the OBE for my services to um, financial services and gender diversity. Um, and uh, most of that really comes from the work that I did at Women in Banking and Finance. So as I said, it, I, I applied to be the CEO of Women in Banking and Finance. I did that pro bono in addition to my day job. So it, it was it was quite a stretch, but it was, if I can say, it was honestly the best job in my life ever. I've loved just about everything that I've done. Sometimes it's been pretty hard, but I've really you know loved in the end everything I've done. But I think being CEO of Women in Banking and Finance was definitely the peak. And that was because I went in and for the first time, I think I gave myself full permission of the blank piece of paper to say, actually, um, let's make a difference and and we have an opportunity here to change and the, the the team was ready to do that and so we just we literally did a strategy day and we said well who do we and what do we want women in banking and finance to be um think big and we did we thought big and then we said great so that's where we want to be now how are we going to get there let's map this out um which we did and so it was so exciting um, and it was a tough journey, but it was an exciting journey. And I have to say, we had so many positives on the way. So, you know, with with WIBF, we had the opportunity to take an organization that had been around for almost 40 years and then transform it into something beyond networking. So we sort of had three three themes. You know, we said we connect our members um, you know, through thought leaders and 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 business colleagues and so on. We challenge the industry 
to adopt new ideas and to address the barriers. And we inspire our community to believe in change. And then we we did that through the structure of WIBF. So we rearranged the structure. So we had a pillar where we did awards. So we were the first at Women in Banking and Finance to recognize and celebrate female achievement in the financial services sector in the UK. And I'll, I'll tell you, it was incredible to see that those award winners went on to do tremendous things. Their careers accelerated. They received the recognition that their organizations otherwise weren't ever going to give them. Um, and it was like rocket fuel for their careers. And it was wonderful to see so many of them give back as well. So I'm a real believer in awards. We did mentoring and development, super, super important. The thought leadership piece, so proud of um, the thought leadership that we did. Um, so we we actually did a, a, a report on um, the missing middle um, and, and what that means um, and actually took tangible data and then made tangible recommendations around how we address the missing middle going forward. And that thought leadership stream continues today. Um, we did a, a, a job board, which is connecting people and opportunities together. And then, of course, we did communities and networking. And we also admitted men. So we changed our constitution and we admitted men because what was really interesting was to see that for many of our member organizations, uh, men were increasingly involved in the gender networks and in the um, gender projects. And it just seemed crazy that they couldn't be part of women in banking and finance yeah. so that they could be in the room. Otherwise, you end up talking to yourself. So I think the OBE very much came from the work I was I was doing with uh, women in banking and finance. And then, yeah, delighted to get the GBR Women in Data Award. Um, uh, a colleague in a law firm actually put me forward, which was, which was super lovely, um, because I'm passionate about data. And so much of what we were able to achieve at WIBF was as a result of getting the data together, really giving um, tangible data as well as contextual data to better understand is, you know, where we are now, then we can create targets and move forward. Um, and that's something that the Women in Finance Charter has been fantastic in doing is actually level setting the data, encouraging firms to put together ambitious targets, measuring how they do against those targets, and then moving those targets up again um, so that we can actually affect real change in the financial services sector. So I think, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, but it's changed an enormous amount from where it was. Um, and uh, I, I just, I think it's it's fantastic. And I think one of the lovely things is to see the younger generation coming through. So there's a fantastic lady called Kate Sarala. Um, I'm just gonna call her out. Um, and she wrote a fantastic book as well um, on, which is give, giving advice to the younger generation on how they as women can succeed in, in the workplace. So um, yeah, it's it's been wonderful to have the opportunity to affect not just individuals, but help organizations realize and deliver the change that they want, but didn't know how, by giving them tools and by giving them encouragement. I mean, that's an amazing legacy to think that you've actually moved the needle, you know, um, because sometimes we, we talk and we try and do, but the needle doesn't get moved far enough or fast enough. So to actually look back and to think, you know, you've moved the needle that much is, I think is absolutely phenomenal. And it's one of so Teamwork, teamwork wasn't oh, me. I, 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 I know it takes a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Teamwork. 
But I also think admitting men as well is a, is a, you know, it's one of my things you have to bring men along in the journey because they are part of the solution, not part of the problem. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. Um, so, so tell me what's what, I mean, you've achieved all these lovely things. What is next in your career for you? I've got a couple of things on at the moment. So one of which is the Picasso Privacy Awards. So I wanted to do a give back to the privacy sector. Um, privacy professionals tend to be underrated, underpaid, underappreciated. Um, and having seen the power of awards um, in my work with women in banking and finance, we've now set up the Picasso Privacy Awards um, for the UK. And then this year we're running the UK and Europe. Um, and then we're looking to grow even more broadly. Um, and it's an opportunity to recognize and celebrate the hard work that the whole privacy sector does. And so this is the first open, public, independently judged awards um, for the privacy sector. And it recognizes everyone from authors, writers, consultants, uh, lawyers, teams, engineers, culture, um, and and. ESG initiatives that are related to privacy. So we've gone across the whole spectrum um, of privacy. That's keeping me pretty busy. And I think that that for me is is, is a real passion. And I, it's, it's, it's a give back to, to that community because it's, it's a tough one to be in, particularly when the role of, of privacy professionals is just broadening uh, day in, day out. But to connect it to that is um, I'm really passionate about the digital economy and AI. Um, and so those are the things that are really interesting me at the moment, um, which is where do we going with the digital economy and how can we make sure that the digital economy is one that is safe and inclusive? Um, and I think digital identity is a huge part of that um, because th that is, it isn't just digital in the sense of things that are clearly technical, but it's, it's digital also in the sense that so much of what we do in the terrestrial world and even down to farming um, has to be digitized um, and needs to be transformed. And we can really benefit from the knowledge uh, that we can learn through sharing the information um, in the in the digital economy. And the AI piece is super exciting because everyone's talking about that at the moment, yeah. but there's yeah. traditional AI and then there's generative AI. And, you know, they're not exactly the same, um, but I think it's an inflection point for us in the world to think quite carefully about how we can collaborate at an international level to address this phenomenon that's going to impact all of us, both personally and professionally and in the government context. And so for me, that's really fascinating because so much of the work I do is international. And I think for the first time, we've got a genuinely common challenge that we're going to have to come together on internationally, cross-border, irrespective of our laws and our cultures to address because responsible AI going forward has to be the only choice and the only destination for us all. What we can't afford is to have runaway AI, which is going to have such a negative impact on everyone. Um, AI that's used for criminal and bad purposes, AI that's used to cause real problems in, in, in countries. What we what we really need is, is, a, is a responsible approach and we can only achieve that through international collaboration. So for me, that's those are like the really big themes and it's it's having that international perspective and, and hopefully having the opportunity to help convene those thought leaders around how do we set up the guardrails to make sure that the AI and the digital economy is working positively for everyone and isn't excluding anyone and no one's being discriminated against as a result. 
I mean, they're 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 big, they're, you know, they're big issues to um to deal with, and you're absolutely right, you know, and it's getting it regulated, and it's how you do that, and and you're absolutely right, and we've all got to come together to be able to do that. I mean, do you think you'll be able to play a role in in helping uh, sort of move the needle in that area? Well, I hope so. So I'm doing some work at the moment as part of the UK Expert Council advising UK government on the international data transfer strategy, um, which is absolutely super. I'm working with the um, City of London. Uh, They're coming up with a a report and some recommendations um, in the autumn. Um, It's been such an exciting project thinking about, you know, what do we need to do within the UK economy to move forward? Um, and you know our recommendations to government and what business also needs to do in order to move forward, recognizing particularly the digital world um, in in which we're living, which is um, super important. So there's a, a number of opportunities. I'm also uh, working with the IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, um, on their new AI certification. So important that we get out there sooner rather than later with um, tools for developers and for policymakers and for businesses to use in order to to enable responsible approaches to AI innovation. Mm -hmm. So I think those initiatives are all around um, uh, seizing the issues of the day and helping to shape policy, thought leadership, and also practical solutions um, to help move those forward in the right direction. Mm. I'm hearing you on that, definitely. So I have to ask you, what would what advice would you give your eighteen year old self if you if you were standing here and were looking back? I would say, live for today, um, plan for tomorrow, and learn from the past. Brilliant. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a three sixty. Um, yeah. I think too often I was looking too far ahead and not enjoying the moment. Um, and uh, I did a course on mindfulness a few years ago, and that was really fascinating. And I suddenly realized it's so important to be in the moment um, and to live because that's your quality of life here and now. Um, you don't want to be, uh, you know, in, in the future thinking about what did I actually do? Um, you know, did I actually enjoy all of that? Or was I just constantly, you know, the hamster in the wheel? So I think living for today is, is super important. You've got a plan for tomorrow. You know, get your roadmap out. I've always had a five-year plan in my life. Um, what I love doing for my five-year plan is looking at it at the end of five years and see how far I've deviated um, or how far I've exceeded my expectations. And that's super fun. Um, so have a plan because it helps you to make those those decisions and decide on those opportunities when they come your way and also learn the lessons from the past. I have, you know, there's so many things I have learned. Don't regret, learn and build. There's no point crying over spilt milk, but, you know, I should have made, should have made a different decision at that point and I didn't. Yeah. What do I need to know? At least you made a decision. I always say that. So we need to do mindfulness, which I couldn't agree with you more. You know, so often we never, we don't live in the moment. You know, we, we're sort of rushing ahead and this and that and the other. And I, and I think that that's a, a really, I think as you get older, you you tend to learn that a little bit more. We need to build a roadmap. Couldn't agree with you more there. And past lessons. Yeah. Don't, don't live in it. Yeah. I'm, I'm liking all of those. <laughs> I add one more, which is yeah. I think um, too often women don't take control of their financial future. Um, and it's increasingly important that we do. Um, too often we 
defer to others who have strong opinions about finances. And if there's one thing that we definitely know about financial services is that women are far worse off than men, far worse off in terms of pensions. Uh, we tend not to um, make the decisions um, that we should in order to secure our financial future. So I think we all need to get savvy with our financials, with our finances so that we can secure our financial future. Because when we can secure our financial future, we can also secure um, our community. Uh, it's fascinating. I did some work with a, a, a charity set up by a friend of mine, um, and it was uh, around sort of microfinance. And it was amazing to see um, that small amounts of investment money to women in, in countries that are looking to set up small businesses, even if it's farming or sewing or or small products that they're producing, they, 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 they were so responsible with that money. They generated a return and then they invested it back. They invested it back into the education of their children and into their communities. And so the exponential growth that came from their excellent um, use and management of that money was was enormous. And I, I think perhaps often in the West, we don't do as much of that when we've got a little bit more money around. We don't often do as much as we should with our financial management. So I would say financial management, take control. I, I think that's a great advice. So, so if you were... You know, if someone listening to this and um, you're sitting there thinking, God, you know, that is definitely something I want to do. What would be, if you take a scale of one to 10, what would be the first thing that you would advise someone to do to take control of your financial situation? Um, I would actually go and see a financial advisor. Most of them will give you free advice initially and do a financial health check, work out where you are and also where you want to be. Um, and then you will know what you need to be doing with your money. Understand what you spend your money on, where your money is coming from. Is it going to increase and de or decrease? Um, and, and take control of that future because the steps you take early on have a massive impact later on. So for for, for many people, it was, um, you know, oh, take a career break. It's, it's great. You've got all of that wonderful flexibility. Taking a career break is terrific, but remember it's going to have a massive impact on your financial health and well-being as well. And we find that um, for too many women, their pension pots are so much smaller than those of men as a result of those career breaks or deciding to work part time and so on and so forth. So think about the impact of those decisions and make those decisions in a in a, a thoughtful way. Um, it's not that you can't take time out or work part time, but um, we also need to think about what the long term impact is and how we might compensate for that in later years or in different ways yeah you know it's uh it's something that i've done i've done recently you know i say the last sort of uh four years i uh, spoke to a wealth advisor and oh my god what a change because you suddenly have a plan and you go oh okay right okay and it's actually knowing where you're going and what you're doing it's it's the security around that instead of just thinking that you know because we all assume don't we, that we know the best thing to do so no i, th I think that's a really sound bit of advice there um Okay, so what's the one question I haven't asked you, you wish I had asked you, but how would you have answered it? Oh, that is such a difficult one. I'm you with that one, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's grim. I, I think it's probably the, the question I probably don't want you to ask in, in some ways, which is, you know, what would you have done differently? Um, and I think actually there's many things I would have done differently. But my answer to that question is actually don't have any regrets. There's nothing worse than looking back and regretting 
what's done is done, make peace with it and move on. And I think that's that's super important because often people want to, they come to a point in their life and it's like, oh my gosh, I really shouldn't have done that. Or I'm not happy with the direction of travel that I'm going in. I need to make a change. And actually, what am I going to do? Because I made all those disastrous decisions before. Learn from it, make peace with it and move on. Um, and the other thing is you can't do everything because, um, you know, life is a series of pathways and it's, you know, it's like snakes and ladders, isn't it? Once you go up one, <laughs> and you're, none of these, none of these may be possible anymore. And then you have to make another decision. Yeah. So, you know, recognize that, that it is that journey and you make your choices, be at peace with it, accept it. Um, you can change your direction going forward, which is nothing you can do about the past. Yeah. I mean, to me, that, that, that shouts of owning your power, you know, and, and, and uh, owning owning your decisions, yeah, absolutely great. So I have to ask you final question: Who would you recommend? I always ask this: Who would you recommend um, on the? I would like to hear on the disruptive mindset podcast. Is there anybody that you think actually they'd be a really interesting person to uh, listen to? Can I suggest two? Oh, one is one is Dambisa Moyo, um, who wrote the book um, uh, How Boards Work. Um, I think she's absolutely fascinating. Um, she is uh, uh, from Zambia uh, initially, and uh, she's an economist, and she's written some incredible books. And I find her insights super interesting. So I think I think she's very much a disruptive thinker. I think your audience will really enjoy hearing from her. Um, and the other one I'm going to give a shout out for is Lena Hegaro. Um, Lena is the CEO of the National Bank of Rwanda. I'm delighted to be a patron of Women in Finance Rwanda, which she has set up. Um, and Lena is doing an amazing job uh, with women in the financial services sector in Rwanda specifically and Africa more broadly to bring together that community of professionals. And we don't necessarily think about the female professionals in financial services in different countries in Africa. Um, and in fact, we we connected through women in banking and finance um, after after many years. Um, and I think listening to her perspectives and her journey, which has been very different, um, but in some ways similar, and also the hurdles that she is is um, challenged with, uh, would be super super interesting. I've certainly enjoyed all my discussions with Lena, and I think she's an outstanding lady. Yeah, thank you. That I really appreciate that because I think financial services and women in financial services in um, you know these sort of different countries, I think, and I think they're doing a phenomenally interesting role around uh, giving businesses or getting businesses money and what they're doing around that. So yeah, no, I'm absolutely on that. Thank you, Vivian. You've been amazing. That's brilliant. Thank you, Emma.